This time last week, I got to be over at the Irmo AMC Theater. It's a place that I, I think you ought to visit at some point. You guys be so proud of what's happening over there at Radius Irmo. We went through the, we watched that same little video, and we walked through the life of Joseph like we are at all of our churches. Uh, if you want a really comfy seat, you go over to Radius Irmo. They got the theater seating that was awesome, and people were engaged. You'd be really, really proud of um, a group of people from some of our other churches that live in Irmo that have decided to give up some of the comforts of other places and make their way into a theater and work on establishing a church. We walked through the story of Joseph last week, which included, as you remember, this crazy moment in Joseph's life where he was tempted by Potiphar's wife and he rose to the occasion. It was, uh, I don't know, I kept thinking, man, he is in a fight for his life and he fought well. That evening, uh, my wife texted me. I was, I was away and she texted me and told me about Kobe Bryant's death. And then as I watched the news, I saw that his daughter was lost as well and, and another seven people. And you could just, I don't know. Those are those moments in culture where somebody famous who seemed like he was invincible, particularly with his daughter involved, it just reminded us that this life we live, it's a fight. It's a hard fight. It's a fight even the strongest lose. Got a small group on Monday night, and small group, the passage was uh, in the Bible was Matthew chapter 4, and we walked through the temptations of Jesus, and one, two, three temptations. It's like a heavyweight fight between Satan and Jesus. There's no doubt who's going to win this fight, but it was really refreshing to see Jesus deal with temptation like me and you deal with temptation and, and actually on purpose deal with temptation so that he could show us that he could win the fight. Tuesday morning. I wake up to a text from Trey Sheely, who is our pastor out at Radius Saluda. And uh, the text asked me to call him. And then he informed me of uh, two high school students that were killed in a car wreck just the night before. One of those students, his mother and sister are partners out at Radius Saluda. And uh, Trey's all in the middle of caring for that community in Saluda. And this very morning, we sit in Saluda and walk them through the grieving process of losing a young man in a car crash. Feel like a fight? Wednesday night, I got the opportunity to uh, speak to our middle school students. We got multiple middle school students, groups across the Radius family, which is I love the middle school guys and ladies, and I got to speak to one of them, and I was just remembering as I was talking, I was remembering being 12 years old, and, and uh, I, I looked at the 12 years old. By the way, these, these young men and women, they were locked, and parents, they were paying attention and listening. I just remember, I told the 12-year-olds, 12 years old, somewhere right in there, the most important year of my life. 
I was dealing with all kind of temptation, but God was also moving on me. And so, so both those things were going on, and there was this war raging inside of me. Galatians actually says it's the spirit versus the flesh. I had invited Jesus into my life. I had all, and I was beginning to enjoy relationship with Jesus. And so there was this power of the Holy Spirit in me. And at the same time, my flesh was still raging, and it wanted what it wanted. And there was this battle raging. Inside. It, was, it, was, it was a great year because the Holy Spirit, I started to yield more to the Holy Spirit, and there was some victory, and I began to really enjoy this relationship with God, and I, I was introduced into this thing that I want us all to know this morning, that you, if you know Jesus, you're in a fight, and he's with you. He's with you. Let's pray for a minute. Jesus, thank you for being with us in the fight. For that matter, Jesus, every Sunday we get together, we celebrate your victory over the sin in our lives. And quite literally, your victory over death. So we celebrate you right now. We know that you know what we face. And we're thankful. We're here together today to worship you because of that. Thank you, Jesus. As we read this story that you trusted us with, we want it to speak into our souls. We want to be formed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. We are really formed by the fight. We've been using this word formed We've also used the word forged, and character is formed or forged in the fight. You remember the first fight you got in? Maybe you haven't been in one yet. I can remember the worst fight I got in because I got whipped. I was on a basketball bus in college, and one of the guys on the bus, I, don't, I, I was probably one talking smack, and he got a little annoyed with me, and he grabbed me. We were messing around at first, and then it got a little worse. Bus is moving. We're back in the back of the bus. And then the next thing I know, it went full throttle. It was a full-on fight, and I found myself in some kind of, I don't know, he had some kind of sleeper hold on me. I'm like, this rascal is going to kill me. It was, it was a terrible fight. I, I cannot tell you publicly how I got out of that situation. You can ask me offline, and I, I'll try to explain it. But I lost the fight. And it was character forming. It was a moment of humor because the way I got out of the situation uh, wasn't exactly honorable. Uh, it, it brought some humility on me. It, it corrected some of my character because I was pretty cocky at the time. A lot of us, we've been in a fight. Sometimes because we were knuckleheads like I was on that bus. But you, those of you that know Jesus, we're actually in a fight now. This is a fight. God's establishing his kingdom on our planet. He has been for hundreds and now thousands of years. And he chose you to be an ambassador, and you are the ones that represent him. And our fight just looks different than everybody else because our tools are love and faith. We're supposed to bring peace. We're supposed to win battles by praying. It's just, it's strange. But that fight, it forms us. 
in a great way to get our children ready. And then for those of us that are part of the body of Jesus Christ at Radius, to be ready for the fight is forming us up by his stories. I don't know how, if you grew up with a dinner table, but we, I grew up at a dinner table. And at the dinner table, my dad directed the stories. Everybody else contributed, kids, the, the, the children, we contributed, my mom contributed, my dad directed the story. All the dads here today, I want you to understand, the dinner table, a few minutes together with your family, there's this powerful tool, and it's, it's this tool of a story. I still remember as I was getting ready for this message, this story my dad told me about work where uh, one of his employees was caught asleep at his desk. He's working the night shift. He'd worked a bunch of hours, and uh, they had to discipline him, which means he lost his job. My dad was doing everything that he could to demote him instead of firing. But you could just see on my dad's face at the end of the table, as I don't know if I was 10 or 11, I'm looking at my You could see how hard this was on him. And in this story, my dad's telling the story, and I'm not sure if he's doing it on purpose or not, but he was forming me as a child. A couple things that happened in that moment. One is I was watching my dad have grace and, and suffer the pain of following the rules on his job. And at the same time, a very clear message was, was stated to me, never fall asleep on the job. I was being formed by that story. So when we open up the Bible and we're spending all this time in a, a narrative, in a story about Joseph, what, what I'm trying to explain to you is this is God. We're sitting at God's dinner table, and he's telling you a story, trying to form the way you think. The narrative is often one of the best ways to have your mind formed. So we're not just telling the story for fun. Uh, it, it, it's actually God speaking to us and coaching us on how to live through another man's life. Let me read a little bit to you. Again, at God's dinner table, you can imagine him at the end of the table reading this passage from Genesis chapter 21, which he had recorded by his servant Moses. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison. Remember last week? Joseph was tempted. He passed the test, but he still got thrown in prison by his boss. So he's in, he's in the king's prison. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that had happened in prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. And the Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Do you remember some of those same words last week when he's in Potiphar's house? It seems a little odd to write on the page that God is with you in prison, doesn't it? It seems odd. In that, that same verse, it says God's with him. It says that he showed him faithful love and, and that he's in prison. They don't seem to match. For most of us, that is not what we envisioned when we think of God's favor. Prison time. Now, the writer of Genesis is Moses, and I imagine as he's writing this story down about Joseph, he's looking back on his own life. He's thinking about his time in Egypt, his relationship with the Egyptians. All this stuff's got, got to be running through his mind. There's this really crazy verse in, in Exodus chapter 33 when Moses has led the people out of Egypt, finally, and he's got this decision to make on where to go. And Exodus 33:15 says this, Then he, Moses, 
said to him, God, he's having this conversation with God. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. What's Moses saying? Saying, I'll go if you're going. I only want to go where your presence is. As you read this, this story about Joseph in the prison, it seems really evident that Joseph's not there alone. Sometimes we say, where is God when we're suffering? In this particular passage, Joseph is, God is with Joseph in prison. I love the, the uh, New American Standard in that passage. It uses the word presence, that God's presence is there. So we know that Joseph had favor in prison. So somehow you get promoted in prison. That's kind of crazy. And then the next minute you're running the prison. That's even crazier. So obviously God was with him. He was showing him favor in prison. But it seems to be more than that. It actually seems that he's enjoying God's presence. I don't know if you've enjoyed God's presence, but man, I want you to. Look at those 12-year-olds Wednesday night. I just, my heart was full hoping that they would enjoy God's presence, which doesn't just mean that he's going to show us favor in this world. It doesn't just mean that he has something for us to do. It means that he loves us and he wants to be with us. <laughs> he wants to give us joy. He'd like for us to enjoy his peace. And you kind of have that picture of his servant, Joseph, while he's in jail. You, you literally picture a man locked up, unable to go anywhere, who is absolutely free. So many of us walk this earth in a free nation, right? United States of America. But we're not really free. We're, we're bound up. This fight has stolen our soul. And Joseph demonstrates a different kind of life. And that's why we read the story. Let me read you chapter 40. Sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. Not good when you offend the Pharaoh. Pharaoh became angry with those two officials, and he put them in prison where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain of the guard. And they remained in prison for quite some time, and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph to look after them. It's this really odd sequence of events where some guys join Joseph in jail. I, I love that first line. I just would like for you to stew on it for a minute. In the NLT, it says, sometime later, which often when life is hard, seems like time does not move. Maybe some of you are there right now. Maybe, maybe time's not moving because life's hard. This little phrase he's used multiple times in Genesis, uh, just a couple chapters before, it says that sometime later, Reuben showed up at that pit that Joseph was thrown in, and it was too late. Sometime later. The next chapter, chapter 41, which, which uh, we'll cover next week, it, it actually says uh, two full years later. And then later in the chapter, he's going to actually start a sentence with finally. For a lot of us, when life's hard, some of you have, have uh, seen a loved one pass this year. It's just hard. It seems like the year will never end. Some of you uh, 
have walked through a divorce. And it's been so painful, it seems like time stands still. It just seems like it does. So that little line, sometime later, seems really appropriate. New American Standard reads like this. Then it came about after these things. If you walk through a hard time, I, I can think of two in my 52 years that were really difficult. There were three-year periods of time, and it just, after all these things, and I can go through those three years and list the things, a lot of them negative, a lot of them that I caused myself, right? But nonetheless, time just kept, kept turning, and it seemed like it was turning slow. And while he's in jail, sometime later, there's a baker and a cupbearer that come join him in jail. I really have in my mind, I'm trying to figure out what they look like. I don't know about you, but I just wonder what the baker, I have some stereotypes of what a baker might look like. And I'm not really sure what a cup, I got a feeling the cupbearer is probably pretty well dressed. He's, he's looking sharp, looking good. And baker, I got some flour on his face and probably a few extra pounds because he's always baking bread for, for the Pharaoh. And, and, and they're in jail and, and, and uh, how they got there really captures my attention. Because why do you lock up the baker, right? What could the baker do? Well, maybe the cupbearer, because he's really close to the Pharaoh. And, and many folks, when you read about it, if you read about what the commentators say, they think that there may have been an assassination attempt, that, that maybe there was some uh, plotting of assassination and, and Pharaoh's trying to sort out who may have been in the plotting. I personally think that Pharaoh threw a party. This is not in the Bible. <laughs> I Pharaoh threw a party, probably for his wife, I'm just making this up, the queen, and everybody at the party got food poisoning, <laughs> perhaps. Maybe everybody got, and Pharaoh was embarrassed. You ever, what's your worst meal ever? You ever have somebody at your house and it just, man, Cheryl and I, we had, we were in our 20s, we had another couple over and we really never had anybody over. We decided to make homemade ice cream, which shouldn't be that complicated. And the whole time the meal was going, that thing ran and ran, and we ran it again, and we finally served them the homemade ice cream and some famous, you know, recipe from Cheryl's family, and she put green food coloring in it so it would be really cool. And so we passed it all out, and I'm telling you, it tasted like wax. <laughs> it was this vanilla wax ice cream. I'm a good husband now. I ate two cups of that stuff. I ate two cups of that green Wax ice cream. I don't know. We must have made butter. We left it in there so long. It was a train wreck. And that night, Cheryl was so humiliated by the meal. And you kind of get that feel with this story that these guys are locked up because they've embarrassed the king of the land. In ancient days and even today in some countries, you do not want to cross in any way the king of the land. And evidently, these two guys have. And then the story unfolds. While they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they, were both, they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked. And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. So here we got, we got Joseph, who's been promoted to being the warden, in essence, of the prison, and he's got... These two guys in his cell block. I don't know if you picked it up in the previous part of the passage. It actually says the captain of the guard placed him there. You remember that phrase? Because that's a different language than the guy who was in charge of the jail. 
quite possibly the captain of the guard referred to right here is Potiphar from last week. And, and Potiphar, because he knows Joseph and he knows his character and he knows his ability, has placed him in charge of these two guys. Why would he do that? Well, the cupbearer sits right beside Pharaoh. He's an advisor to Pharaoh. He takes care of Pharaoh's, uh, of what he drinks and eats and protects him, but he's also an advisor. And I imagine that Potiphar does not want to screw up this relationship with the cupbearer. And so he places him in charge of Joseph, and these two men have dreams at night. Some of y'all dream. I, I rarely can remember one of my dreams, and usually when I wake up, I have some kind of crazy dream. I can connect it to something that happened the day before, something I saw on TV, something that happened during the day. And usually it gets all twisted up, and it's this weird dream. These particular dreams seem to be bigger than that. They seem to be dreams that God has given these two men so that Joseph could interpret them and show his connection to God. I think it's particularly uh, intriguing that Joseph is ready to care for somebody else while he's suffering. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, who is, he's just this great Bible teacher. He, 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 puts forward this idea that Joseph is a just extremely positive person, that he uh, thought the best, which is quite possible reason, reading this passage. I, I, as I read it, begin to ask the question, has he just walked with God in long enough where those things are so bad, he's working off muscle memory? Anybody seen Ip Man? I-P-M-A-N. It is a fighting movie. It's a uh, it's awesome, but he, he fights and uh, he, he works every day and he, he basically develops muscle memory of how his hands and his feet and his body move. And, and even as he gets older, he's just this amazing, uh, this amazing fighter. I, I get enraptured by it every time because of all the work he did to develop muscle memory. I, I challenged our 12-year-olds just, just the other night, hey, if you start now, reading the Bible, and, and just do the time. Eventually, you develop this muscle memory so that when temptation comes, you got some power to make the right decision. Oftentimes, you can actually use the Scripture to help you defeat the temptation in the moment. In this particular passage, I, I see a young man, Joseph, in jail suffering, suffering with a good attitude for sure, but his muscle memory is so well developed that like he loves God, he loves his neighbors. <laughs> we call this church radius. Literally, in jail, Joseph is responsible for his radius. He's on the job. He's not sulking. He's not in his cell crying about a situation. He's been promoted all the way up, and he's leveraging his situation to care for other people. Tony Evans comments on this particular passage, and here's what he says. Most striking, however, is his confidence that God would use him to reveal the dream's meaning. So here's a young man, right, in his 20s that's been wronged in every way. He's in prison, and he's confident that God's going to use him in this, mon in this moment to be responsible for his radius. And that he's literally going to be given this gift from God to interpret it. You remember Joseph having some dreams in the past? 
You remember this when he was a kid? He probably didn't handle them just exactly right, but there was a supernatural power. And that confidence that goes all the way back to his teenage years is, is coming to the forefront right now while he's in jail because he's being responsible for his radius. Tony Evans goes on to say, in our suffering, a common temptation is to stop believing that God will use us. What a great line. Let me remind you of it again. In our suffering, when life's the hardest, a common temptation is to stop believing that God will use us. There's this temptation when we're in that fight that I've been talking about, and we are getting it handed to us to believe that God has left us and he no longer wants to use us. And it can put us in a downward spiral that is absolutely destructive. Here's the crazy thing. Oftentimes when we're suffering, we're in a great position to represent God, to be his ambassadors. There's, there's this great passage in, in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians that, that reminds us that God is the God of comfort. Let me just read you a couple verses. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. How about that radius? He says that God comforts us so that we can comfort others. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. And then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort that God gives us. It's this interesting statement that Paul makes to the church in Corinth that part of their job is to help folks who are suffering while they're suffering. So let me just be kind of clear. I told you earlier, character is formed in a fight. And I just need you to know when you're in a fight, you're going to get hit. And you're going to get hit more than once. I'm afraid we're teaching our children that if you just follow Jesus, you'll never get hit. <laughs> Couldn't be further from the truth. If you follow Jesus, you're going to get hit. You're going to get hit more than once. You're going hit, to get hit in more than one season. It's going to come over and over and over. It's good to know that it's coming. It's imperative to know that we need to prepare for it coming. We are in a fight. And that fight doesn't go away. On our worst days, it's still right there. Be a little transparent. There's a three-year period of time. One year we lived in Texas as a family. Two years we lived in Anderson, an upstate. And I just failed. It felt like it, everything I tried. I was losing confidence by the day and uh, really was struggling with who, who am I? And uh, Cheryl was really good to me during that season. My kids strangely look back on those three years as a great three years, even though I was annoyed constantly, and yet I, I just had more time with them. And so they look at it as fun. We were struggling to 
pay the bills. We literally cut wood to heat this big house that we got to stay in for free. And they all remember cutting the wood. I remember not being able to pay the bills. You know how that goes. You look back to that really difficult season and, and look, that, that, that muscle memory of the years walking with the Lord since I was 12 stayed intact. Even though, bro, I'd be embarrassed for you to see my attitude on certain days during that three years. I can remember walking and praying and feeling like God's not listening. I'm wasting my time. But then I'd run into somebody and that muscle memory would kick in and I, I would just do what followers of Jesus do. I'd love the person in my radius. It was great. As a matter of fact, I made some of my best friends during that season. I, Lord's blessed me through the years with great friends. But in Texas, actually, uh, if you guys know uh, uh, Russell Johnson, who, who teaches at Radius Lexington, uh, Russell and I met during that season. We meet, I don't know, every couple weeks and eat chicken wings. You want to make Russell smile, take him out to some good chicken wings and uh, drink sweet tea and talk about life. He was good to me, and I was good to him. And a lot of me being good was just muscle memory because I was struggling so deeply in hot side. Some of y'all know Devarius Peterson. In the next two years, we lived up in Anderson, and very little ministry went right except that I banged knees in a basketball game with Devarius Peterson. Very quickly, he moved into our home, and despite my brokenness, my muscle memory kicked in, and I just did what God had taught me from his word. And he lived in our home and we were able to give to him. And he looks back at it as this wonderful time where he saw great parenting and a, and a healthy home. And I, I was looking at it like this thing is a train wreck. Here's Joseph in the middle of all this suffering, still being responsible for his radius. It's an amazing example. Read a little bit more to you. This is Genesis again. We're, we're, we're toward the end of the book, and we're into chapter 40. And uh, Joseph just continues to meet the bell. Here's what it says, verse, uh, verse 9. Uh, so the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream first. In my dream, he said, I saw a grapevine in front of me. And the vine had three branches and began to bud and blossom, and soon it produced clusters of ripe grapes. It was holding Pharaoh's wine cup. I was holding Pharaoh's wine cup in my hand. So I took a cluster of grapes and squeezed it into the cup, and then I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And here's young Joseph looking at really one of the most influential people in the land, and he interprets the dream. This is what the dream means. The three branches represent three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up, will lift you up and restore you to your position as the chief cupbearer. And please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention to Pharaoh that he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison, but I've done nothing to deserve it. It's a pretty interesting line. The cupbearer tells his dream which is strange, I guess not explicitly strange. He's actually dreaming about some stuff that he's done. He lays the dream out before Joseph, and Joseph interprets it quickly, and I'm sure you, you caught it. He, he simply says, hey, in three days you're going to get released. 
that's my kind of dream. <laughs> Let me have a dream where good news is at the end. Three days you're going to be released. You're going to go right back to your old job. Pharaoh's going to love you just like he always has. He's serving this guy even though he's suffering. And he gives him terrific news. And this guy anticipates three days later. I, what I really like about those few verses is that uh, they're not overcomplicated. Joseph serves in his suffering. And then when he's given the chance, he realizes that the cupbearer is going to be sitting right next to Pharaoh. And he asks him, hey, remember me when you get there? Remember me. Tell, tell Pharaoh that there's a guy who's like, I need a pardon. Get me out of here. Anybody got a problem with this? He shows great faith interpreting the dream. Does this feel unfaithful when he asks to be released? Doesn't bother me at all. I think sometimes we overcomplicate stuff. Here's a real opportunity. It shows Joseph's just a regular guy. He doesn't understand why he's in prison. He wants to be out of prison, and yet he maintains this great attitude in prison. Whether it's great by discipline of his soul or whether he's just practicing muscle memory, we don't know. But he's ready to get out. And yet he still serves this guy. There's a great line in the previous verses in verse 8. It says, interpreting dreams is God's business. So I, I particularly like the way Joseph interprets this dreams and represents God in his radius and cares for this cupbearer. And then comes the baker. Not nearly as fun. Let me read it to you. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given the first dream such a positive interpretation, you know, some of us that see the world half, the cup half empty, we don't want to risk knowing what our dreams are about. <laughs> the baker, after seeing a really positive result, he's like, hey, I'd like to know what my dream means. And then he unpacks it. I had a dream, too. In my dream, there were three baskets of white pastries stacked on my head. Clearly not gluten-free. <laughs> the top basket contained all kind of pastries for Pharaoh, but the birds came and they ate them from the basket on my head. So you got these three baskets. I'm kind of trying to imagine these baskets stacked up on his head. Dude must have had mad skills of balance. But three baskets stood up on his head and the very top, I don't know, I, I'm thinking like some really nice pastries like you find down at the coffee shop. They're on the very top, the best, and the birds just keep flying in and, 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 and stealing from the pastries. And Joseph, without a whole lot of pause, at least in the narrative, says, this is what the dream means. Catch this. The three baskets also represent three days. Three days is good. It was good last time. Three days from now, Pharaoh will lift you up <laughs> and impale your body on a pole. Then the birds will come and peck away your flesh. <laughs> that is a little different kind of truth. You can imagine the baker and how he's processing in this moment. That can't be true. Got to go the other way. But Joseph has already said interpreting dreams is God's business. And so when he was put on, this, uh, on the spot by the baker, he interprets the dream on behalf of God, being a representative of God in the radius, and he tells the truth. There's this uh, pretty funny commercial on TV where uh, Pinocchio is giving a motiv motiv motivational speech. You've seen it? And he actually makes eye contact with one of the guys in the audience, and he's trying to tell everybody how great they are. And the more he tells this guy on the front row how great he is, his nose grows. You've seen it? It's kind of true of our whole culture. 
We have this way of when somebody's in trouble, telling them that it's not their fault, even when we know it's their fault. Telling them that it's all going to get better tomorrow, which actually uh, we all know better. And at the end of the day, we give them no service really by lying to them. We actually show them that we really care more about ourselves. And we're just kind of trying to cover our tracks. In this moment, though the news is terrible, Joseph is God's representative in his radius. And he tells the baker the truth. What do you think about that? In baseball, they have this thing they call it timely hitting. So timely hitting is you can get a hit all you want, but if you can get a hit with a man on base, particularly second or third, that's timely hitting because you, you actually have the opportunity for an RBI. Even more specifically, timely hitting can be late in the game when you really need a run and the guys who, who, who hit things just right on time, we would call them clutch. Like they do it just in the right time. It's timely hitting. It's one of those things with truth that's a bit complicated. And hopefully if you've been following Jesus for a while, you're maturing it. Because part of our job, one of our weapons is the truth. The truth is this, God's word. Um, sometimes the truth is actually the wisdom that God's trusted us because we can see where somebody's life's going. But when to say it is really important. You, in, in, in this particular passage, the baker has given Joseph permission to tell him the truth. Man, I would just encourage you to be a steward of the truth and to pray that God would help you use it in the right moments. This Kobe story hit the news on Sunday, and so everybody's talking about it. Seems like uh, whether you're a basketball fan or not, the story has captured America, and it, it puts us in a position to share the truth. However, for some folks, that particular story has really, really hurt them. Maybe because of their fandom, you can have whatever view of that you want, and it's probably not the time to evaluate whether Kobe knew Jesus or not. There's some others that'll give you that. They'll give you permission. Matter of fact, I've seen multiple argue, uh, uh, articles. People are already asking questions. Did, did Kobe know Jesus? It's kind of a, a strange conversation, and for a lot of you, you need to hold it. Like it's not time. It's not timely truth, but somebody's going to give you permission. They're going to say, what do you think? And, and, and there, there may be a conversation where the Kobe death, where his daughter's death might open up a door for you to share the good news about Jesus. Then hit it. Don't miss it. It's an opportunity for us to step into the fight. Let, let, let me explain something to you, though. Not swinging, like when, when you're not directed by God or you're not given per permission by someone else, is as important as swinging. Because it's not about you. It's not about you venting. It's about you actually loving the people of God, the way we get in the fight is by love. And it's so counterculture. We walk into the fight loving. Our Savior did. He walks into the fight loving and it overwhelms the enemy. They don't know what to do with it. So sometimes we start with the truth. You got to start with love, which directs the truth. If you don't ever tell the truth, then I'd argue that you're not loving. But love really helps us with timely truth. Read these last couple of verses. 
Pharaoh's birthday came three days later, and he prepared a banquet. You know, Pharaoh's going to have a party on his birthday. He, it's a national holiday. Uh, he prepared a banquet for all his officials and staff, and he summoned the chief cupbearer and the chief baker to join the other officials. And then he restored the chief cupbearer, just like Joseph had predicted on, after three days to his former position. And he could again hand Pharaoh his cup, and Pharaoh impaled the chief baker. I'll leave the details out about that. Just as Joseph had predicted, and he interpreted his dream. Last verse. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Ugh. Right? Not again. Where is God now? Impossible to read this story and not be frustrated with God's timing. And yet, the more I read it and, and read it again, God clearly is developing a man. He's got Joseph in this process. The process doesn't look like what I thought it probably should. He's developing a man, and through his suffering, he's preparing him for the future. He's developing character. He's forming him. He's forming him in the fight. I want to close with this. We put bread and juice up uh, every Sunday. One of my favorite things we do. It's not new for radius. It's something the church has been doing for thousands of years. We put bread and juice out front so that you could come take it and remember the ultimate fighter. I think sometimes because he's the lamb of God, doesn't sound like he's a great fighter. You talk about the ultimate fighter who was on mission from the day he was born to the day he died. He died on purpose to defeat the enemy, to demonstrate for you his power. He literally did all the work for us on the cross. He, all, that sin, all that flesh and sin that you were born into, he covered on the cross. In a time like today when clearly we are in a fight, we lean on his power. We celebrate that he's the victor. So on, on this day where we have things to mourn and things to celebrate, we rest in the fact that Jesus is the victor. And he leads us into battle, and the victory is assured. And he'll walk us through these days that are so uncomfortable like a loving shepherd. Let's pray together.